The COVID-19 pandemic has opened the health sector's eyes to new possibilities in the digitalization of healthcare. In response to the pandemic and in a bid to free up hospital beds, hospitals across the world turned to virtual consultation and telemedicine to a level never seen before. In some countries, over 70% of consultations are now taking place online. Perhaps the experience of the pandemic gave us a glimpse into the future of primary and hospital care and the push to accelerate greater integration of technology into health. With such a rapidly changing landscape, what will future healthcare facilities and hospitals look like? And how will this help to address the current gaps in healthcare provision in the Asia-Pacific? As you look at leveraging technology, you can not only deliver um, services inside the four walls of the facility, but to begin to connect to the community to deliver uh, services and or provide training out in the field. You know, while it's really, really unlikely that technology is ever going to completely replace us doctors or any healthcare professional for that matter, I think it's highly likely that doctors and or allied health professionals who do not embrace technology will certainly be replaced by those who do embrace it. The way I look at digital is basically, it's just a tool, it's an architecture, but smart is making, uh, making use to the relevant stakeholders. And obviously, uh, we are in healthcare, therefore patient comes first. And what does that all mean to the patient? This is Healthcare Redefined, a podcast which explores the vital issues driving digital change and innovation for a sustainable healthcare sector in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Rob Cook, Clinical Director of Health Policy at Economist Impact. This podcast has been commissioned by Philips. In this episode, we will explore what hospitals will look like in the future, what role they may play in the broader ecosystem of care, and what this may mean for patients, providers and clinicians. Care in the Asia-Pacific region is still widely hospital-dependent, based on the premise of a one-place-serves-all model. There has already been successful integration of digital technology into healthcare systems, and we can expect even further investment in the digitalization of healthcare. To keep up with this, hospitals need to build new models of care where they connect with patients in new ways through care pathways beyond the four walls of a hospital. And what about the consumers, the patients themselves? Are they ready for this shift away from the notion of hospitals as the de facto healthcare provider? As the industry begins moving towards models that might seem to be more convenient and less expensive, we have to ensure that there is consumer buy-in and trust in these new systems for the smart hospitals that are beginning to emerge. Do we need a completely new approach to how we deliver care, with hospitals themselves being reserved only for the critically ill and only a small part of the wider healthcare ecosystem? I'm very pleased to welcome you to the sixth podcast in the series, where I will talk to three experts about how smart hospitals are making use of innovative technologies to improve care quality and patient experience, and what that may mean for hospitals and the wider ecosystems of care in the future. With us is Dr. Zubin Dariwala, Health Industries Leader at PricewaterhouseCoopers Singapore. Dr. Harish Pillai, Chief Executive Officer at Metro Pacific Hospital Holdings in the Philippines, and Dr. Shez Partovi, Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Royal Philips. Welcome and thank you all for joining us today. So we'll be starting the conversation by talking about what we mean by a smart hospital. 
there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around and used interchangeably when it comes to the role of digital in healthcare. When talking about hospitals, is there a difference between a digital hospital and a smart hospital? What are your thoughts on this and what are the core characteristics of smart hospitals? Thanks very much, Rob. That's a great question. So I think before we talk a little bit about digital hospitals, digital health and smart hospitals, I kind of like to propose a definition of at least what I define as digital health as a practicing clinician myself. Um, I think over the years there has been this convergence of healthcare, medtech and pharma with digital being a common factor that underlies this. So whenever I speak about digital health or digital, I kind of refer to this convergence that I just mentioned and the digital technologies that are associated with it, with or without these convergences. In terms of digital hospitals and our digital hospitals, smart hospitals, I think the first thing which is probably most widely accepted is that we have an MRAM scoring system by HIMSS, which stands for the Electronic Medical Record Adoption Model. And this model scores hospitals around the world from between zero and seven, and this reflects their digital maturity level, with seven being the highest a fully digital hospital. But to answer your question, I personally don't think a digital hospital is necessarily a smart hospital. Uh, for me, the latter is really dependent on how you use data, how you use the different technologies to provide really what I like to call the P's of the new healthcare system. And this is essentially an ecosystem that is predictive, preventative, personalized, or I'd go as far as to say hyper-personalized, and participatory. So those are my initial thoughts, Rob. Thanks a lot for that, Zubin. Shez, do you want to expand on this, the difference between digital and smart? When I think of the difference between digital and smart, um, to use a, an example that we probably are all familiar with is, if you think of your car, there is a possibility of having a digital fuel gauge, which can accurately tell you what the fuel is. But then some cars, when you're running low on fuel, the map shows you where the closest gas stations are and maybe even the prices of those gas stations. And so you have a distinction between a car that has a digital fuel gauge versus a car that's smart and says, you're running low on fuel. On your way over here, you might want to stop by this gas station and, and fill up. That is sort of the prototypic, to me, dimensional difference between just digital versus smart. And now if you think in a hospital, we all remember the days of clipboards where you fill in your history when you come in to check in. So you can digitalize that clipboard. But if every time you want to get care, you have to re-enter the information and the information doesn't flow anywhere, there's no interoperability of liquidity of data and being able to use the right information at the right point of care, then it's digital, all right. It's a digital clipboard, but it's not smart in the way it uses that data to advance care. And so that's a sort of the metaphor of having a digital clipboard versus data liquidity, fluidity, and information available across the continuum so that the right decision is made at the right time with even the right recommendations. So I think the fuel gauge and, and the cl digital clipboard are maybe metaphors of how the difference between digitalization of something and a smart system. That's a nice analogy, and I suspect one must precede the other in a way. We need the digitalization first before you can become smart. So if we move on to thinking about the care providers within these hospitals and how having a more advanced hospital could help, maybe we can think of some examples here. Harish, can you share some thoughts on this? So one challenge what we face in the Asia-Pacific region is manpower shortage. Uh, 
like Asia is probably one of the top zones in terms of exporting manpower to OECD countries, to the US and Europe, whether it's nurses or even doctors. So in this uh, scenario of uh, supply chain for human resources, how do we leverage the time of uh, available people? I think that's one way of leveraging it. For example, we have busy outpatient clinics and the doctors are always challenged for time to give proper time for their consultations. So can the technology be smart enough to uh, make sense of the history, which you know, in a triaging system, you take a good, decent history someone does a general examination, that kind of data is fed to the clinician. And the system can also give cues for a differential diagnosis. So the total time required from a traditional consult point of view, whereas leveraging on smart technologies can be much lesser. So the same doctor can actually care for more patients than what could have been done in a traditional model. So that's classically one example. Uh, the other example is from a nursing perspective, because unfortunately, where hospitals are not smart, nurses have to spend, I would say, up to 40% of their time just on documentation. And some of these documentation is uh, redundant. Uh, rather, that 40% of time should have been spent on the bedside caring for patients. So if you automize a lot of these documentation, decision-aiding process, I think nurses can become more productive. When it comes to digital health and health tech, a lot of people think digital or health tech is the solution. People think that, you know, telemedicine is the solution. What people often forget is that even when you're using, whether it's telemedicine services or other technology solutions, it's still dependent on resources that are available. So coming back to answer the question on some examples, I think there are some very smart ways of using and leveraging resources that may not necessarily be in one's geography. Even in Singapore, Changi General Hospital years ago, but many hospitals around the world, not just in Singapore, use time zone differences to get resource augmentation. There was one example of a hospital between Australia and the US. It was, uh, it was like tele-ICU, right? And they showed that there was no loss of outcome. Uh, it was still good outcomes when you use resources. So if it was in the night in Australia, it would be the morning in the US and anesthetic staff from nurses to actual doctors would be monitoring the patients in the ICU. If they needed attention, something needed to be done. They could do it, but they could also then call somebody at the time to physically come. So that's an example of kind of leveraging resources. But ultimately we have to remember that technology is not the silver bullet. It's still dependent on resources, on, on human capital, at least at this point in time. So we spoke about healthcare providers. How about the patient? Patients might have different expectations of healthcare today than they did before the pandemic started. How do we think health systems can offer the ease of access and convenience that patients have come to expect beyond the hospital? You know, Rob, we, we, um, we live in a world where, as healthcare consumers, our best experience anywhere is what we expect everywhere. So when you have a delightful experience booking a restaurant, you want a delightful experience booking your vaccine, which, of course, we saw come to the forefront with certainly COVID recently. So patients want to be engaged and to self-manage as much as possible. It's not simply for physicians and nurses to care manage a patient, but rather as they are before the walls of the hospital or after the walls of the hospital to be able to self-manage their journey with assistance digitally or otherwise from the center of excellence or from the institution, from the hospital. And so these 
journey points before the patient come in, online scheduling, uh, being reminded to show up for their appointments, what they need to do. And then after they leave the institution, their payment simplicity of what they need to do in terms of follow-up care. These are the digital pre and post extensions that we're seeing patients and our customers' health systems ask to help ensure that happens. So these digital touch points are what hospitals, in essence, can lean into in order to ensure that you have a delightful experience, but also actually improves quality and reduces the cost of care. I think one comment I wanted to share was that, again, I see a lot of my colleagues, so I still practice medicine, right? And I think a big mind shift is that many clinicians or allied health professionals don't appreciate the power of consumerism or patient centricity. Many do not accept what patients want today, right? And it's amazing what patients want. They want the same experience. Shaz said it there earlier. They want the same experience they get when they book a hotel, when they book a holiday, when they book their vaccination, as Shaz said, right? And if we don't kind of use technology to give them what they want, they're going to go elsewhere, right? And so for many years, there used to be this kind of line I used to say that, you know, while it's really, really unlikely that technology is ever going to completely replace us doctors or any healthcare professional for that matter, I think it's highly likely that doctors and or allied health professionals who do not embrace technology will certainly be replaced by those who do embrace it. And so again, it comes down to it. We need to figure out what do patients or consumers today want, and we need to build and function our hospitals and our clinics to address that. What Zubin said is spot on. Uh, we had just commissioned a large market research in the Philippines uh, because uh, when we were looking at our operational data, we could make out that uh, the outpatient and inpatient census numbers have completely changed. Uh, I mean, obviously, last year we had COVID, but looking at 2022 from a transition point of view, uh, there has been a change in pattern. And what the market research revealed was quite uh, interesting in the sense that there has been a change in consumer behavior. Now, people have realized during lockdowns, during COVID, that you don't necessarily have to go to a hospital for your mild issues. You know, you have teleconsult, you uh, use the e-pharmacy platforms, or e-diagnostic platforms and avail of all services in the comfort and security of your home. Uh, so that is really pushing towards uh, a moment towards digital or teleconsultation. Going to Zubin's point of view that they are also specifying the kind of expectations they have from providers if you look from a digital channel perspective. One is ease of use of whatever the, the platform is, availability of a wide choice of doctors real time, uh, they want the possibility of really looking at specialists. So this is, I guess, this is a signpost of things to come when we look at the future. Very interesting. It sounds like we all agree that maybe the role of hospitals is changing a little and they don't necessarily have to be the one place that patients go to to receive care. Shez, any more thoughts on this? People think that hospitals are like going to go away. But the, the point is that there is an appropriate use I don't subscribe to the idea that hospitals would disappear, but rather the comment Hirsch just made where people are beginning to realize that I don't need to monolithically run to a hospital for everything. And, and so what's happening is we begin to understand that for hospitals, there are reasons you should be in hospitals. And there are clearly reasons that are not necessary to go to a hospital. And so this idea of being able to um, write uh, direct patients or triage the right people to go in the hospital 
and, and, and those that don't need to, was really exemplified by COVID and reminded to everyone. So that subtle distinction is becoming more and more obvious. And the technology tool sets help make that distinction achievable by helping those that need to stay home, stay home while still being monitored. So this discussion is really useful in that drawing a distinction between uh, whether we think hospitals are here to stay or not. I think they're here to stay. Healthcare Redefined is a podcast series commissioned by Philips. A word from our sponsor. Since 2016, Philips has supported original research to help determine the readiness of countries to address global health challenges and build efficient and effective health systems. The Future Health Index focuses on the crucial role digital tools and connected care technology can play in delivering more affordable, integrated and sustainable healthcare. With almost 3,000 healthcare leaders surveyed across 15 countries, the 2022 Future Health Index focuses on how data and advanced analytics are giving healthcare providers new tools which enhance their ability to deliver care to all sectors of their communities, both in and out of traditional hospital settings. Click the link in the show notes to access the report. It's expensive to build and operate hospitals and the underdevelopment of primary care systems in many countries of the region mean that most patients view hospitals as their first and last point of care. But on average, Asia only has 3.7 hospital beds per thousand population a 20% reduction on the OECD average of 4.6 beds, which highlights a critical supply shortage, such an essential element of healthcare in the region. The high capital expenditure needed to build and run hospitals is also a drain on scarce resources, so most are constructed in urban settings that serve higher volumes of patients. However, this contributes to disparities in healthcare access and quality within countries between rural and urban areas and across the region, as the quality of hospital care depends significantly on resources. As we've discussed already, there may be a bigger opportunity for developing countries in the Asia-Pacific region to embrace a new approach to healthcare delivery by transitioning care outside of hospitals into the community. Shez, perhaps you could start off this discussion for us. Do you agree that there is an opportunity here? How do you think smarter hospitals could alleviate the financial burden to build, staff and run hospitals? I think um, there's terrific opportunities. And when you talk about um, the role of hospitals as we go into the future, you have to think about, so what are the strengths that a hospital has? First of all, it's 24-7 open and it has complex equipment with highly trained individuals. And so the advantage there is that as you look at leveraging technology, you can not only deliver um, services inside the four walls of the facility, but to begin to connect to the community to deliver uh, services and or provide training out in the field. So here's an example. At Philips, we developed this technology called Radiology Operations Command Center. And the purpose of this technology was because there's a shortage of radiology technicians that actually do the scanning. And so Um, We built this technology so that in centers of excellence and in command centers, there are individuals that are highly trained that can help outlying areas and and ambulatory sites of imaging get expertise from that hub and to the spokes. So in this case, for example, you have experts that are sitting in an organization, a facility that are actually not only doing scanning in the building, in the hospital, but are able to remotely monitor and remotely assist other technicians 
in smaller community hospitals and or in ambulatory sites to the same high quality level of uh, scanning that are done in those centers. And so this one of the ways in which I believe we can look at how um, not only take advantage of the hospital in its presence and as an anchor in the community, but use technology to actually extend the skill that's in the organization to outlying areas and to a smaller facility. Dr. Harish, what do you think about this, particularly looking at a market like the Philippines? Is there an opportunity for care to move more outside of hospitals? And could that help alleviate some disparities in healthcare access? Talking uh, briefly about moving into the community and how can uh, technology leverage that. Now, we have a uh, interesting situation evolving in the Philippines where there is a law called the Universal Healthcare Act, which has been passed. And this uh, act basically envisages two separate healthcare net provider networks in the public sector and private sector. And we have a gatekeeper concept, which means that uh, every primary care center is responsible for the lives of 20,000 citizens in this country. And in order to run a network, uh, you first, if you have a health issue, you go to your primary care provider and you do a triaging there. And if required, you can be uh, referred to a level one hospital, which is a basic hospital, all the way to a level three hospital. But the idea is that the health information is captured in a network-wide uh, uh, hospital information system and an electronic medical record. And the whole purpose is that you try your best to keep people healthy. And on the top of that, the, the financial incentive, which is provided by both public and private uh, payers, is basically to incentivize uh, preventive health care and to keep the community healthy. So this is, uh, this is a very good example and a case study for all of us to keep, keep a watch on, on the evolving scenario in the rest of the world. Yes, that's a very good example of integration and coordination across services, and one I'm sure we'll be watching closely to see how it develops. And Zubin, you have a point to add here. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of us talk about this preventive care and keeping costs down by preventing disease. I think the first thing I want to want to state or just share as a perspective is that when we talk about preventive care, we are pushing costs down the road. We're just kicking the can down the road because we're going to have a greater and greater aging population that at some point will need complex care. So it's not that we're reducing costs, we're reducing costs in the short term. We're still trying to figure out how to reduce costs mid to long term. That's, that's one thing. But in terms of what hospitals of the future might look like, right, wanted to share another kind of perspective, which is like a little, like a pyramid, right? And at the top of the pyramid would be the general trends that we're seeing, which we often, you know, kind of say A, B, C, D. So we're seeing a lot of automation and artificial intelligence. We're seeing big data being used. We're seeing consumerism, you know, consumers being empowered. And then we're talking about digital. And then one thing that we then can look at is actually what our former minister of health in Singapore said back in 2016. And this applies globally and will then apply to how hospitals need to react. And our former Minister of Health said three paradigm shifts are needed. And that's moving beyond healthcare to health, moving beyond hospital to home, and moving beyond quality to value-based care. So if we take these trends and what these shifts mean, the way I look at it is that a provider, whether you're a hospital, a clinic, an individual doctor, in the future, there's this trilogy of success, uh, essentially what I believe that you have to have a brick and mortar uh, 
you know, service offering infrastructure. So to Shaz's point, hospitals will never completely go away. What is the appropriate thing that is done in them? That's the question, right? So the trilogy would be, you have to have a brick and mortar. It has to be modular. It has to be adaptable, right? You then have to be able to provide services in the community. So whether it's through telemedicine or whether through it's through physical care, right? And essentially telemedicine is the third one, right? So telemedicine services, brick and mortar services and physical care in the community and home. Any provider looking to be future ready is going to have to provide all these three. Three very important models of care. I think we agree here that all three are necessary for the future. We talked about triaging and other aspects of care. Something we haven't really touched on is diagnosis and diagnostic tools. I just wonder what the future of diagnosis might look like in this new world. And what's the appropriate use of these tools outside of hospitals and inside hospitals? Do you have any views on that, Chez? Well, I, I think um, diagnostic tools, if you sort of look historically, you have a device and an interpreter, like a chest x-ray machine and a radiologist or a, or a, a hospital bed monitor and a nurse that would be interpreting the waveform. It was even worse, it's generally had to be in the same room next to the patient. You had the patient, the chest x-ray machine and the radiologist sitting right next to, you know, next door. And so what we're really seeing is this idea that you can begin to separate the place where testing happens, like the, the digitalization of x-rays, for example, is a great example where you can actually have the scan done in one area, but interpreted in another area. And so one of the first benefits of digital transformation in diagnostics was the fact that you can now have the devices and the patient in one area and the interpreters in another area. So that was your first scaling mechanism. And then in that journey, what we're seeing in this, that the interpretation can now be assisted by artificial intelligence and machine learning. So whereas you had machine in the same room as the radiologist essentially and the patient, now you separate them digitally. And then in between, you provide AI tools that, for example, will, if you take a chest X-ray that has a particular findings, it may move that to the top of the queue because based on machine learning says, hey, radiologist, you should look at this first because there's likely a finding here that, and we want to accelerate care, improve quality and reduce costs because of reduced untoward outcome. And, and then ultimately, the last comment I'll make is that you can, we also have now technology algorithms that as you do the scanning, in the case of ultrasound, for example, the machine, the AI actually looks at the scan and says, there is a pathology here, actually making a diagnosis, like saying there's a condition called fatty liver, where it's really hard and you have to be skilled interpreter to really figure that out in ultrasound. And now you have the scan that's happening, the actual AI algorithm that says, I diagnose fatty liver here, and then we'll alert the radiologist who can then confirm that finding as well. And so that, that's the kind of progress that's happening in diagnostics, digitalization, addition of AI and machine learning, and to actually help accelerate care to improve quality and reduce costs. Thanks very much. That's a very comprehensive skip through some diagnostic benefits of digitalization, And we've definitely come a long way already. Arish, what's your perspective on all of this? What I'm really excited about is that many times as... Uh, as clinicians, we always used to wonder the the phenomenon of averages of medicine, that uh, uh, all of us are unique biological specimens. And, uh, you know, you, you can't have a, uh, like a gunshot therapy for something which, let's say, Shes, Zubin, or I have. We can't have a common drug regime for the three of us. So uh, what I do see emerging is this whole philosophy of personalized or precision medicine, 
and diagnostics is really evolving to facilitate that kind of therapy regimens, which is so unique and precise for a person. The second, I think the greatest impact is that, like Zubin's point, that we don't have to really uh, go to a provider when the disease is really late in, uh, in the stage of detection. You can actually prevent it or at least recognize potential, uh, ch uh, potential behavioral changes which might help you to stay healthy. So I, th I think these are all some interesting aspects. The third aspect, when you talked about f the future of diagnostics is, I'm a, I'm a big sci-fi sci you know, fiction fan. So I always uh, looked at the, the doctor on board USS Enterprise, uh, you know, and he had this handheld portable scanner, which was both a diagnostic and a therapeutic tool. So the most exciting part is that low-cost, high-tech solutions are already here, and that's going to really revolutionize and make positive impacts for healthcare worldwide. And as we start concluding the conversation today, how about looking beyond, say, in five to ten years' time? When we talk about redefining the role of hospitals in the future of healthcare delivery and how they might become a much smaller part of a larger healthcare system, what changes do hospitals and healthcare systems need to consider now to ensure they are future-proof? I think we will start to see is the, the culmination of all these technologies together where the things that occur in person and require um, large equipment in a facility will become uh, more and more decentralized, more and more moving to the home, and, and not just um, telemedicine. Because when you think of telemedicine, people think of, oh, I'm on video and I give a prescription. It's really this idea of enabling care at a distance. That care is both diagnostics and therapeutics. And so you have things like wearables aiding with diagnostics. Our digital exhaust becomes the way of diagnosing conditions early. And then, of course, to being able to also see patients remotely and deliver care remotely, like chronic disease management. So those are the trends and directions I think we're going to see more and more from hospitals as they become part of an ecosystem where care is accessed from home in a clinic, ambulatory in a hospital, post-acute, and where the digital ties to it all allows patients to receive their optimal care where it's best for them, not always in a hospital, but possibly coordinated and orchestrated by hospitals. Um, so those are, I think, some of the dimensions of where we might see, you know, a transplant hospital is always going to be a transplant hospital. You know, that's a highly specialized, very vertical, uh, that sort of, but when you step outside of that transplant type hospital, the role of hospitals can become part of this orchestrator in a community in the health journey of an individual, not just when they walk through the walls of the hospital, but rather as, as uh, Harish said, maybe as part of owning X number of citizens where you care for them, no matter where. And Harish, some final thoughts from you about the future of healthcare and hospital. What I'm really excited about the future is the democratization of healthcare, because in the earlier paradigm, there was information asymmetry, where let's say a lot of uh, information was available with the care providers and the consumers were always in a dark spot. But because of this uh, information revolution taking place, there is a degree of asymmetry uh, between providers and consumers, which I think is good uh, for the entire sector. Uh, the second uh, future which I envisage is uh, there will be automation coming into large segments where currently we have a resource constraint. One example which uh, my colleagues already touched upon is areas of pattern recognition, whether it's radiology, whether it's dermatology, tissue pathology. I think th there will be automation to such an extent where uh, you could provide specialized services to large parts of the world. I think that's really possible. 
I feel that there will be some kind of equity models between the developed countries and the developing world. Uh, that's also possible because of these advances in uh, technology taking place. And finally, Zubin, do you have any last thoughts on the discussion today? I think one thing that that reminded me of is something that we didn't touch on, and that's something called the social determinants of health. Very interestingly, over the years, the social determinants of health essentially refer to, you know, how much you make, where you live, what you eat, etc. I like to use the phrase, it's no longer about your genetic code, it's about your postcode. And that actually determines one's health outcome. Very interestingly, years ago, when we talk about digital, the CDC in the, in the US used social media and other digital tools to overlap the uh, incidence and prevalence of heart disease across the United States. When you looked and mapped that back to the actual morbidity and mortality of heart disease and death, etc., they were actually very, very similar, right? And so I think one thing uh, is that these social determinants, we have to, as providers, factor them in somehow. How? I don't know exactly, but I think it's going to be imperative if we want to deliver really top-notch care and get the best outcomes we can. Thanks for that closing comment. Maybe soon we'll have a digital solution for socioeconomic determinants of health too. That is it for this episode of Healthcare Redefined. Thanks again to our sponsor, Philips, and our guests, Dr. Zubin Dawuwala, Dr. Harish Pillai, and Dr. Shez Partovi. Next time, we'll be looking at value-based healthcare in the Asia-Pacific region and what role digital transformation and data play. If you like what you've heard, please follow the podcast series on your favourite podcast apps or visit the Healthcare Redefined website where you can find articles and videos on the digital transformation of healthcare in the Asia-Pacific region. You can find relevant links in the show notes.